the one thing we know is that shutting the bars for six weeks and having the restaurants go back to takeout service combined with for the first time for allowing cities to put mask ordinances, that worked. And then on the second go around, when we started going exponential in late November, there's a policy decision to not use that tried and true formula that worked in the summer. Maybe what happened in Arizona is the same thing that happened in California. People got back to living somewhat more normal and didn't want to go back, didn't want to stop going out, didn't want to take little exceptions, didn't want to stop little indulgences. This thing is so infectious that you just need a little of that and you start to lose control of it. And plus also, it's a social thing. One of my theories is that I think we allowed ourselves to get too lost in detail. This has happened before with vaccine delivery. If people start creating these very complicated hierarchies about who should get it and when they should get it, it just slows it all down. Just say anybody in healthcare, boom, get it. Don't worry about whether you're an ICU nurse that takes care of people all the time or you're someone who happens to work behind the scenes. Just get it out. Hey, everybody, welcome to 2021 and the first Vitalist Spark podcast of this new year. I'm your host, John Ford, and we are starting up right where we left off with our COVID-19 roundtable. Those quotes at the top of the show are your hints about what's to come in this episode. First, a look at where we are now and reflection as to how Arizona got here. Next, some analysis of what individuals and communities are thinking and doing. And thirdly, just what the heck is going on with the slow rollout of vaccinations. It's a conversation filled with great insights serious frustrations, and surprising revelations that you do not want to miss. Before we get to the conversation, know that today brought more striking COVID news for Arizona. You'll hear us talk about having the fifth highest population-adjusted weekly average case rate, but just hours after recording, Arizona officially vaulted to number one in the U.S. per data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. Community spread is currently orders of magnitude higher. Hospitals and their staffs, as you'll hear in more detail, are at or near breaking points. And the case rate trajectory indicates that system stresses will increase over the coming weeks. Please contribute to slowing down the spread. Wash up, mask up, and shrink your circle. The more people we bump into, the more chance there is for COVID-19 to spread. It's that simple. The capacity of our healthcare system to care for Arizonans is at stake. The well-being of our frontline healthcare workers is at stake. The lives of so many Arizonans are at stake. Do your part. Shrink your circle of contact. Be COVID smart. All right, let's get to it. You won't find any New Year's resolutions in this episode, but you will find Arizona realities and revelations regarding COVID-19 as of January 4, 2021. We never thought we'd be here when we started this roundtable back in March, but here we are. Welcome to the first COVID-19 roundtable of 2021. As always, we want to welcome the bedrock of this particular show, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how are you? Good, but bedrock? You've been here for every episode. And I guess I am. So grateful to welcome back Dr. Joshua LaBear. How are you, Josh? I'm doing great. And the man who is going crazy, but still keeping it all together. Dr. Nicholas Vasquez, how are you, sir? I'm really happy to be here and not working a shift today. Let's start with you, Nick. Tell our listeners what is happening in hospitals right now, in particular your hospital. 
In a word, I would say things kind of suck right now. I don't mean to like be uh, colloquial, but there's a lot of people. There's not a lot of places to see them. And not for lack of trying, people are bending over backwards to try to make space and take care of people. But whether it be lack of ICU beds or physical capacity in the emergency departments or just sheer exhaustion from dealing with this and knowing that we're not even out of this yet, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's kind of hard to see how we make it through January intact. What can you do? People come down with COVID. So whether it's nurses or docs that I know or, or people that I know in the community, this is a highly infectious virus. So no matter how much you try, people come down with it. It's just a lot of people to see. And I think the, the thing I hit on the other day that I'm feeling is it is the hardest thing for me as somebody who like actually likes people to look at somebody and go, I can't do anything for you. Whether it be people who just have COVID and don't feel good. I mean, I got Tylenol or ibuprofen, which they have at home, and that's about all I got. Or people who are on the extremes of illness, folks who are the sickest, who need the most oxygen, who don't look like they're going to do well. There's not a lot I can do for you other than having an end-of-life conversation about, are you really sure you want to be put on a ventilator? That's the hardest thing right now is just, I feel a little powerless. Dr. Marjorie Bessel seems to have become the de facto spokesperson for hospitals. She says Banner Health System is over 100% capacity. The state's dashboard says 92, 93% capacity, depending on which day you look at it. Take those numbers and turn them into a reality in terms of how you all are managing the work that you're doing and trying to provide as much care as possible to those who need it. Well, for example, we are unfortunate enough that we have a family member in the hospital, not on death's door or anything, but we tried to do the nice thing the other day and buy the nurses some pizza. They're working hard and we just wanted to show them some appreciation. And when my uh, wife called to let the nurse know that nurse started crying, hmm. it's the small humanities that really extend people along. Yeah, I can speak for myself and to say, I'm tired of this. I was tired of this around Christmas. I was tired of this before Christmas. I'm tired of it now. And it, it is so hard to get up and move on and not be furious with people who go, yeah, yeah, we were super careful, but then we had people over for Christmas and then we went to Vegas and now I got it. Help me understand what you were thinking because you weren't, but you know, blowing somebody out of the water and yelling, it doesn't change anything. They got it. Their morbidly obese diabetic family members got it. Uh, okay, roll the dice. Let's hope it goes well. And I still think the great majority of people are suffering under a large delusion that there's a lifeguard on duty ready to save them. And that's just not the case right now. Our public health officials are overwhelmed. Our medical system is overwhelmed. And I don't really care about the percentage numbers. I care about how many nurses have to work extra shifts, how many beds were created to create an ICU bed, how many processes are being taken over to create capacity. All of these are little tricks that hospitals can do in the wintertime, and we do it every year, whether it be holding patients in the post-operative area or holding patients in the emergency department or creating a little alcove where you can call it a hospital bed. We do all sorts of stuff to create capacity, but it's the sheer number of staff you have to provide care that is the rate-limiting step. And those trained professionals, those are the ones who are 
tired, crying, frustrated, up to here with it, who are getting COVID and then coming back. Right now, it's kind of like hard to be caring. Well put. Josh, just because that wasn't sad enough, let's talk about where the seven-day average case rate is. As far as I know, it's the fifth highest in the U.S., and the U.S. itself is already off the charts, but tell us more. Right. If you'd asked me a week ago, it looked like we were plateauing in the state of Arizona, not plateauing by any means at any good place. We were plateauing at the fastest rate of new cases that we'd ever been, period, in the state's history. But the holidays have managed to help us turn it around, and now we're rising again, kind of against all odds. We are perilously close to 10,000 new cases a day. Right now, we're about 9,000 new cases a day. We're talking about a seven-day average here. We're not talking about kind of the daily fluctuations like yesterday's 17,000 number, which is probably some accumulation of over several days. But nonetheless, at seven-day average, we're still at this incredibly high rate, second only to California, which is also accelerating again. They were plateauing, but they seem to be rising again as well. The numbers are not good. Our model that we did at the end of November, we had kind of fallen off that rate of rise a little bit. And so we were wondering if we were sort of saturating the part mm -hmm. of the population that doesn't really follow all the mitigation practices, but that there was this population that was still behaving pretty well and they were not necessarily getting infected. But now it looks like we've cracked into that group too. And it's a one-way street. Once you break into a population, there's no getting back out of it anymore. It's in there and now it's going to spread around in there. And so some group of people who were behaving pretty well, the group that decided to go to Vegas after all, whatever, those guys are now getting it and now they're spreading it. Once it gets into a family, it's in the family and it's going to spread in that family. That's what we keep seeing. So you either keep it out of your household or once it's in your household, you're kind of stuck with it. Everybody gets it. So yeah, it's not looking good. We talked about this before, but let's talk about it briefly again. The state health director had mentioned that it was okay to continue to keep things open because most of the spread was happening within the family. That's where most of the cases were coming from. Talk about the other side of that coin. That's a misleading statement because yes, in a sense, if one person in a, let's say a four person household, if one person gets it, then three more people will get it in that household. And so you could argue 75% of that household got it within the household, but it wouldn't have entered the household at all if that first person didn't bring it in. The spread that happens out there in the community gets into a household and it spreads rapidly in the households. And so the idea is we can best prevent it from hitting all four of those people by not letting them get it out in the community. I think that's what we have to really pay attention to. You know what? She knows that. They just don't want to do any interventions. They don't want to shut the bars. They don't want to have the restaurants go back to takeout service. So she needs to say something that makes it seem like the, the governor has some compassion. They're saying things that they know are misleading because they need to support a policy decision that's not compassionate. And they don't want to admit that they're not compassionate. So here's the softball to you, Will. What are we doing wrong? either that we have talked about or that we haven't talked about yet? Well, it's past tense. What did we do wrong? What we did do wrong was we did not have real enforcement of the required mitigation measures when we ended the pause. Remember when the bars were able to open again in early 
August and then restaurants could go back to in-person service and there had mitigation measures that they all attested to that they would follow, but there was no enforcement of that. And that led to the gradual ramp up linear at the time, not exponential, the linear ramp up in cases throughout all of August and September and into October. And then we started to see it start to go exponential in November. And Josh's team, again, gave them an opportunity to see into the future with the predictive models. They ran that model on November 25th, and it showed exactly what is happening today. And so they had every opportunity to, even at that late date, make some intervention changes. By then, it was too late to just enforce the existing mitigation measures. By then, it would have required to shut bars again to avoid the situation that we're in today. Had there been good enforcement going back all the way to August, I think we could have avoided a full-on bar shutdown in restaurants going back to service and still not ended up in a hospital crisis. We, of course, would still be in the throes of the pandemic, but we wouldn't be over 100% capacity. We could talk about why the health, state health department's website says 93%. They're bulking up the denominator with licensed beds that aren't really staffed. So what did we do wrong? We didn't pay attention to the predictive models that were forecasting what was going to happen. And we didn't, by that I mean the governor and Dr. Christ didn't ramp up the evidence-based tools that we have. And I don't mean shutdown, I mean evidence-based tools that could have been used to slow this thing down. So those were the mistakes that were made. And I got to tell you, when the November 25th model came out from BioDesign, and then nothing happened after that intervention-wise by the governor, I thought, well, okay, maybe they don't believe the model. Maybe they don't really believe that those guys have their act together, that whole team has their act together, and that this is going to happen. Then by December 10th, you could see that it was exactly tracking what they said was going to happen. And then I began to believe what I believe today, which is they did probably believe that model, but they were unwilling to do the kind of interventions that would have made a difference. So since you asked me, I just told you what I think we did wrong. What we're doing wrong now, the bars are still open. If we were to shut the bars now, we could come out of this early February, perhaps. But because I have no expectation that that's going to happen, the bars are going to stay open. The restaurants are going to stay with both takeout and in-person service and no real enforcement. And so that's going to continue to amplify the virus. And there's two things that are going to end this for us. Number one, we're burning through so many people in terms of people that are getting infected and recovering. So those people are protected from future infections. And then the folks that are getting vaccinated last week and this week and into next week at assisted living and skilled nursing facilities, as they get vaccinated and as they begin to build an antibody titer, we can start removing them from the pool of people that end up in hospitals. And mm -hmm. so that in the end, vaccinating people over 75 is, I think, the strategy that the governor wants to use and it will work, but it will have a cost. I'm talking about a human cost. These are people. Yeah. You know? One of the reasons that he uses to not do these kinds of interventions is he says that there's no safety net like there was in the summer. Remember in the summer, there was the CARES Act money and the increased unemployment insurance to help folks that lost jobs and that. And he said, that's one of the reasons I'm unwilling to take these interventions like closing bars. In the meantime, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of CARES Act money that are still left on the table from the first go round. And now unemployment insurance on the federal level has been boosted by $300 a week. 
And there's a new paycheck protection program in place for many of these businesses. So safety net is available to be used. And he always had the resources to create that safety net, but was unwilling to create that safety net and use it as a reason why he wasn't going to implement interventions. So there you have it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? I have money that I could use to create a safety net that I don't want to use because I want to keep it in the bank. And then that gives me a reason to say, I'm not going to do the interventions. I don't do the interventions. We end up in a hospital crisis. I write a $100 million check to hospitals so they could go out and hire some staff and I can go to sleep at night. That's what's happening. One of the things that we're doing wrong is, for example, you said bars are open, but schools are closed. Uh, I think that's a problem of what we value and what we're willing to sacrifice for. The other thing is $100 million for hospitals to go out and get staff as if there's staff to go get. This is across the country now, and you can't get travelers. They're trying, but you just can't get travelers. The ridiculous amount of premium they're having to pay just to get people to work extra shifts across the valley and across the country. I really think that there's a part of this where people started to think that no one cared about what was happening to them. That as they struggled with whether or not to pay the bills or as they were running out of money or not being able to put food on the table or maybe possibly getting evicted, I think people just decided that nobody kind of cared enough to do something about it. I think part of us stopped caring about other people. All right, I'm going to wear a mask to protect me, but the common courtesy of I'm going to take extra precaution for the rest of the population so I don't spread it around kind of went out the window and it became like, I got to do what's right for me. And I wonder if that's part of this unwillingness to go the extra mile to support people. It's an interesting theory. I think that's another one out there that is people now think that they are de facto experts at public health because they've lived with this for 9, 10, 11, 12 months. Will, I'm sure you've heard this one. Why would Arizona go and do shutdowns? Because it didn't work for California. Yeah, well, there's something to that. I don't know why it hasn't worked. I just have not been tracking California well enough to know the difference. Here's what I can say. The natural experiment that we did over the summer is as follows. We had exponential growth in the virus. We ran up against hospital capacity and were at saturation. The two main interventions that the state put in place is, number one, allowed the local jurisdictions for the first time be able to put a face covering ordinance in place, which really improved adherence to face coverings. And B, the bars were shut down for five or six weeks and restaurants went back to takeout service and cases dropped by more than 80%. That's the Arizona experience. That is what we know worked and got us out of that midsummer crisis and into a pretty good, actually, September and the first part of October. So I don't know what happened in California. I've been following the Arizona experience. And I could say the one thing we know is that shutting the bars for six weeks and having the restaurants go back to takeout service combined with for the first time for allowing cities to put mask ordinances, that worked. And then on the second go around, when we started going exponential in late November, There's a policy decision to not use that tried and true formula that worked in the summer. It's important to point out that a lot of municipalities and groups started backing away from those measures that we took over the summer in September. And at the beginning of October, you could already see the beginnings of exponential growth. 
So yes, it was really apparent to everybody in November, but the numbers were all there in October. Our model, we were talking about exponential growth even through October. What we saw in November and December was just when that curve got pointing straight up at that point. Is there any element of the model that is actually influenced by experiences outside of Arizona, like a California, like in Italy, or is it all driven by internal state data? Our model is based on state data. There are plenty of models out there for other states though. And a lot of this was being predicted. The California experience is hard to understand, although it's a very heterogeneous state itself and it's a huge state. What I don't know is if people have compared areas to other areas. I mean, at some point it's just so pervasive, which I think is true now. It's just hard to get a grip on what is causing the spread now. I mean, it doesn't make sense to keep bars open. It'd be way better for people to eat at home and, and not eat indoors in restaurants. But also people shouldn't be inviting other families over. All these things that people are doing, it starts to add up. And kids sporting events, people were going to those. And you could drive by those events and you could see clusters of people chatting away without masks on, on the sidelines all the time. There was a whole host of things that folks were doing. There's a California shutdown and then there's an Oregon shutdown. Oregon has been shut down and stayed shut down for a while, mm. but California shut down and then relinquished and then came back. And that's the Arizona experience. Once you kind of let up on the guard and go, okay, it's safe to go back out again, people attenuate their risk and attenuate their risk perception. Whereas I think Oregon, say for better or for worse, it really hasn't alleviated their shutdown or their mitigation efforts. Maybe what happened in Arizona is the same thing that happened in California. People got back to living somewhat more normal and didn't want to go back, didn't want to stop going out, didn't want to take little exceptions, didn't want to stop little indulgences. This thing is so infectious that you just need a little of that and you start to lose control of it. And plus also, it's a social thing. If you see other people in your social group out and about with their kid outdoors at a football game, it creeps in your mind. God, I want to do that. Mm. I just think there's this inevitable creep towards, I want to go back to normal. I want to go back to the average. I want to go back to what I knew before, before this pandemic is over. And people, I guess, are making gut level risk decisions. What's the likelihood that I survive this or that I'm going to get it? Mm -hmm. I think they all think that they're above average, like everybody thinks when they're driving. <laughs> they just think that they're they're going to be fine. Yeah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Don't worry it, about it. It'll it be all right. It used to be fine. It should be fine again. Right. Until the occasional person where it's not. I think there's something that just was hitting on that's basic psychology that I had maybe fully appreciated until now. And that I, I think there's something to that. It's like the reverse lottery effect. Most people know that 7% of people that get diagnosed with COVID-19 or get sick enough to end up being hospitalized, 7%. And then the fatality ratio for most ages, seniors know that they're at a much higher risk, but it's less than 1% for the vast majority of age groups. And so I think there's a reverse lottery effect where you think, well, it could, surely it won't happen to me. Where there's a lottery is, the odds are way less and they still buy the ticket. The optimistic, like, well, even if I get it, I'm pretty tough. I've heard many people argue the well, only old people are going to die from it. Mostly they're the ones who get it too. And so whatever, bring it on. If I get it, so be it. Right. I've heard that a lot. And the notion is this is not really a problem of spreading the virus. It's really a problem of comorbid diseases. And those people are the ones who should be being careful and the rest of us don't need to worry about it. I guess I would go back to my thing of people stopped feeling like other people cared about them. And so they stopped acting in a way that's caring about other people. 
The problem is most of you are probably going to be correct. If you get COVID, you're going to have a miserable week to two weeks. You're going to be out and you'll get better. Maybe you'll have some lingering symptoms. Maybe not. Maybe you'll be one of the unfortunate people who gets a PE or gets heart failure or myocarditis from it. But most people are going to be fine. That's not the case here. The yeah. case is that you now are a part of a chain that inevitably is going to lead to somebody else's death. And you've participated in that. I think if you drove every day and caused an accident or two every day, you might think about whether or not I was supposed to drive. And I just don't feel like people are thinking outside of their own realm to think, how am I going to impact these other people? How am I going to participate in this chain? And who is it that I'm going to contribute to their death? Which of these people am I going to impact? I feel like that's a message that's just kind of gotten lost among the many messages that we get inundated with every day. I wish we had had a national campaign of, it's not lethal to you, but it's not so good for grandma. So maybe we all take some protection and protect the elderly people who we love. I honestly think that's a core reason why our country does so poorly at this, because we've got this culture of individuality and the collective good isn't at the forefront like it is in many other countries. And it just makes it a lot easier to get better results when everyone's on the same page, like South Korea, for example, and Thailand. Look at Thailand's numbers. Look at Vietnam. How is it that a place like Vietnam, with the GDP levels that they have and the resources that they have, have been able to outperform the United States by several orders of magnitude on this thing? Because people are having each other's back there. And very few people have each other's back in this country. That's a part of why we're doing so poorly. People blame years. it on the, who's the president and this kind of thing. I think it has to do with the psychology of Americans being individualists. Okay, so maybe that's the background in the painting, but you can't say that we handled this with aplomb or highly coordinated. I mean, one of the problems with the vaccine outroll is we are relying upon the county, and I'm not criticizing the county other than to say the county health department has been starved for resources for about the last 20 years, and suddenly now it's in charge of the most important thing to happen in COVID in a year. You're surprised we have hiccups. I asked a simple question like, okay, I got my first shot. When maybe my family members who are right in the firing line with me because I come home, when might they be able to get a shot? And they're like, we'll get back to you. They're having a hard time, no criticism. It's a real thing to coordinate this huge vaccine campaign. So my hat's off to them for as hard as they're working. And I found it to be much easier than I worried about. Just go up, you get your vaccine. And that's all worked out. Now we're going to go to nursing homes. Now we're going to go out into the community. Now we're going to, I mean, are we just going to say, show up and get your shot? Or how are we going to do this? I don't know. I don't know that anybody knows. And from my understanding of the conversations, those thoughts have been shelved for, we'll get to that later. Oh, you, know, you just opened up the Pandora's box of vaccines. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how slow the rollout is and what we think is driving that. Josh, was that where you were headed? I was going to add one other thing to the combination of the backdrop of individuality and the forefront of lack of leadership, and that's willingness to spread misinformation, because I think that has played a big role in our country. There's been a huge amount of misinformation about this. There are still leaders who are talking about whether or not masks work. How can that happen at this point? How can people 
even ask that question. There's all this misinformation about what spreads the virus and what the virus does. The fact that it's even allowed, and I don't mean allowed by legally, I mean allowed by- Tolerated. Tolerated, that's a good word. The fact that that happens has made it possible for people to not follow things that we know would make a difference. Here, here. I think the vaccine is an important issue and you're asking why it's taken so long. At least one of my theories is that I think we allowed ourselves to get too lost in detail. This has happened before with vaccine delivery. If people start creating these very complicated hierarchies about who should get it and when they should get it, it just slows it all down. Just say anybody in healthcare, boom, get it. Don't worry about whether you're an ICU nurse that takes care of people all the time or you're someone who happens to work behind the scenes. Just get it out. I think you're right about that. I think it ought to be healthcare workers, doesn't matter what kind, then age. And you just work your way down ages. But instead, we have these, are you an essential worker? Well, I work at APS. I work on the wires. We haven't even started to get into that rabbit hole, but that's where we're going to end up because that's who 1B is. There's a million people in Arizona in 1B. A million people in 1B. Half of them are 75 and up in age. The other half are quote unquote essential workers, teachers, and that. So you have to start subprioritizing inside of 1B. And to me, I think you do healthcare workers and then you say 85 and up, then 75 and up, then 65 and up, and go like that after you get but the don't healthcare be, you workers. Know, don't wait long because the truth is among the, the 85 and up, some of them just aren't going to get it. And then those vaccines are going to sit in freeze. Just 20% of the available healthcare workers have gotten it so far. And they could have had it, but they're just not getting on it. It's frustrating. Among my group and and among other people that I know, both around the country and also in the state, there's been success stories, frustrations, and all sorts of questions, and just hard to get straight answers. But I do know that there is daily vaccine capacity not being used. Yep. We could be just saturating those places. I give all credence to the fact that there are smarter people than I who made these hierarchies because of the relative risk of people dying. But if we're going to keep the bars open, how about the servers? How about the bartenders? How about the people who do the Instacart, the gig workers, the folks who can't not stay home, but don't qualify for essential worker? They're not a teacher. They're not a, they're not working at a bakery. And they're people too. And as part of this kind of like, do we care about each other or do we not? Like, you know, yes, okay, you need it orderly. But if you are using 50, 35% of your vaccine capacity, vamos, let's go. Like, <laughs> what are you waiting for? Just quit being so picky and just say you, hey, person there on the sidewalk, do you need a vaccine? Come on, over you go. Because it's not like I got somewhere in a central database where I know one, the lot number I took or two, what exactly the vaccine that I got, uh, they told me, but I don't have stickers. They just told me. So I got a little card that I got to go back and present again. Somewhere I got an email, I scheduled. I'm fairly certain that half of the problem is that there's this central database that they're trying to maintain that once again, this institute that starved for resources for 20 years is not quite capable of keeping up with vaccinating 5 million people in less than eight months. You've been in the chair of state health director. You've been following this pandemic closely from day to day to day. Can you say definitively that there is not a production and supply component to this? 
You mean in Arizona so far? Yes. Oh, the, I know what the problem was over the last two weeks. A big part of it anyway is Pfizer vaccine came out on December 14th or something like that. And Moderna was a week later. So those started to get out. The healthcare workers pre-registered. Nick, you probably went through that pre-registration website with Maricopa County. There were five mass vaccination sites in Maricopa County. Which one did you go to? The one at Chandler Gilbert. It was super smooth. I get yeah. in there. I had my little printout, roll in, show them my printout, get my shot, wait about 15 minutes, and then So it's interesting. The two pods, the Southeast and the Southwest, they called them pods, but the mass vaccination sites, Southeast and Southwest, were for many days empty. And there was no one there getting vaccinated. And the reason why is that the state health department's website that was supposed to make the appointments for people that did the pre-registration with the county health departments was not working. And a lot of healthcare workers never got anything back out of the system. They never got an appointment. Others did get an appointment, but they were told to go to Globe or, or Snowflake or Sholo. And some did. <laughs> And so yeah. that computer glitch caused people to not get appointments and it sent other people to the White Mountains to get their shot when they lived in Goodyear and had the Southwest vaccination site five kilometers from their house that were yes. says the globe. That's finally fixed. But that was two out of five pods in the biggest county were not working hardly nearly at capacities. But Nick, mm. you got your shot at least that way. Well, which is- it, not without hiccups. So, I mean, once I got to the pod and once I got it scheduled, it was super smooth. But we had definitely the same kind of problems trying to fill out that form, wait for an email. Did you get the email? What does the email look like? Where did it come from? Who else is, is scheduled? Well, why don't you try Honor Health? Here, call Banner, call this person. It was like in college. We used to have to register over the phone for classes using the touchstone phone. And you had to have your classes all scheduled out. But when you called, it's like all of a sudden you'd overwhelm the circuit and it'd just hang up on you. And you're like, no. And that's exactly what would happen. You'd get, I had stories from all of my brethren about holds times for 45 minutes and then they got hung up on or trying to schedule an appointment from the East Valley, schedule an appointment for a site out in Sun City West to be able to just go and get it or go to the fairgrounds. And there was this mad scramble to try to get a vaccination anywhere. It was a really maddening time until eventually that site worked. But then I didn't even tell you about the joy of waiting around to see when am I going to get my second shot? Because I wasn't scheduled for my second shot immediately. They were like, use the platform. And the platform said, you have no appointments available. I'm not 100% sure that all the hiccups are out. And I know we've had communications about the various pods of sometimes just show up and get it. And we'll figure it out afterwards. I think in the end, to go into your question, John, I think in the end, if I was in my old job, what I would try to do, you got to leverage the infrastructure that's there instead of creating something new. And you got to use existing businesses that have some skin in the game who want to participate. And so I'd use like Walgreens and CVS and other big chain pharmacies, engage them with contracts, saturate them with vaccines. The pharmacists, they can do those injections now because it's within their scope of practice. And they're in on every street corner in the urban areas, just about and they're accessible and short. And I would just use that existing infrastructure. Easier said than done because Pfizer is such yeah. at such a cold temperature. But AstraZeneca is on the way, and that's just a refrigerator vaccine. And that will make it easier to do that kind of pharmacy model. 
But do you think that a regular Walgreens or CBS would be able to do the Moderna? Although Moderna is such a smaller company. They have more doses though, because they were part of the warp speed thing. And so they have a hundred million doses coming. Because Moderna doesn't have the ultra low temperature thing, they'll be out in the rural counties for sure. This just brings up one of those, what's the role of government questions here? Because former state director just said, well, you know, maybe the pharmacies can do it. What is the role of government if it is not for the health of the public? And then why is it that we have to wait for a crisis to go, oh, yeah, we should have some capacity there. (laughs) We should do something there. Or maybe we should invest some money there. I find across all of the state, when it comes to things that the public sort of relies upon, there's again this idea that the lifeguard is there or that the capacity is there. And every time we go to count on it, we realize, actually, it requires a significant, a lot more investment if you really want to have that capacity. It's like the worst insurance policy where you just want to pay for the minimum, but then you want the maximum in return. And then you've got sticker shock because I got to pay for that now? No, I thought you covered that. No, like you have to invest in capacity. And we have this pandemic that is going to, and downer of the day here, never go away. We're going to get it in control only to then have people's immunity wane or it to change. Like COVID is endemic and will stay endemic. Like H1N1 stayed endemic and came back around and got some kids pretty sick last year. We've lost the window to make it go away. We will always have COVID from here on out. The COVID-19 will be one of those endemic respiratory diseases that we have to deal with that I will see every couple of years or so people's immunity wane and folks will forget to get the vaccine booster and it'll come back and we'll have to do this dance again. But it won't be a public health emergency. And Will, it seems like there's actually a violent agreement between you and Nick. Nick is saying, let's invest in the right infrastructure to get the vaccine out. You're saying, yes, let's invest in the right infrastructure to get the vaccine out. And that right infrastructure is actually a public-private partnership with CVS and Walgreens. Yeah, I think you have to look at it and just say, What's the most efficient way for us to get this through that makes it convenient for the most number of people? And to me, it's the pharmacies because they're all over the place. There's thousands of them. I think there's something like at least 2,000 pharmacies, maybe more than that, around the state. And they're there. They'd be interested in participating. Why? Because you have to walk past all the junk food and the crackers and the fish sticks in the freezer before you get back to where they'll give you the vaccine. That's why all the drugs are at the back of a pharmacy because you have to walk through all the other stuff. So they'd be interested in doing this because they'll sell other merchandise while you're in there. And they're located all over the state and people know where they are. And we can sign contracts, give them some cheese so that they make sure that they do it. The pharmacists is in scope of practice for them now. I'm just telling you what I would do. I'm a big believer on jumping on a moving train. Got to find a way where the infrastructure already exists, that they'll be interested in participating, that the public knows about, that's not something that's new, that people have been to their pharmacies before. They even have drive-through windows, most of them. The drive-through sites are pretty efficient in terms of actually getting needles in arms. Where the inefficiency has been is the filtering of people through this complicated database. When we get to the point where all comers, I don't know that the drive-through will be so inefficient at that point. You don't necessarily need drive-throughs everywhere. I'm sure that they're already looking at the at the oh, that, and all that. 
just that pod, that drive-through, they had 10 lanes, 10 lanes ready to go, 10 lanes staffed. They, they were ready to go. Boom, boom, oh, boom. Oh, they boom, were boom, very boom. fish. They were. Oh, really my God. Fish. I pulled up and there was a whole bunch of cars there and I thought, oh, crap. Okay, well, I'll wait. I was out of there in like no time. It looked much worse. It was just, they were so efficient. Boom, boom, boom. Move you through this way, that way, and you're out. It was very fast. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the pods could be the answer long term. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Josh. COVID news can be overwhelming and difficult to process, but the three of you give us data, a proven model, insights, and direct experiences that serve as a prism. We get a spectrum of perspective and light from you. And for that, Vitalist and our listeners are grateful. As Josh noted, Arizona still faces exponential case growth. As Nick noted, healthcare capacity is truly being stressed. As everyone pointed out, we need the vaccine rollout to pick up speed. Put those three ingredients together, and we still have a huge need for the community to step up for itself. Be COVID smart. Make your January behavior as safe as you possibly can for everyone. Wash up, mask up, and shrink your circle of contact. The fewer people we interact with, the less chance there is for COVID to spread. It really is that simple. Now is truly the time to double down on healthy, low-risk choices. The Vitalist Spark will be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There's a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark, just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.